Good evening, you guys. Good evening, you guys. Hey, Jay. How you doing? No, how are you personally doing? Good. Glad to hear that. Jerome, you would appreciate it where I was this weekend. I went up to Duluth and to the great wide open is what they call it. Are you familiar with Duluth? Cold, outdoorsy. You're kind of into that sort of thing, aren't you? Have I been reading you wrong all these years? Well, I did go up to Duluth. I um, actually just drove back today. Does anybody care? Like, do you care at all, folks? Jeez. Kate, you care? Thanks. Um, had a lovely time. Lovely time up in Duluth. Great restoring moment. It was great to get away. Not like I needed to get away from anyone in particular, but it was really good. I went up with some friends. We had a little cabin, and it was cozy, and it was just a nice, relaxing weekend. Um, uh, yesterday, though, one of my friends had this crazy idea where uh, he started talking about, he has no sense of gratitude for like the comforts that modern technology has brought our way, and he started using language about hiking or something of that sort, and wanted to go see Gooseberry Falls and go out into the great wide open and connect with nature and see God's creation, to which I said that's what the Discovery Channel is for. We don't have to do this to ourselves anymore. But um, they went anyways. I stayed behind. And um, in that absence of, of people talking and making noise and being all by myself, it was amazing. I don't know if you guys have had this experience where, like, you are surrounded by silence for perhaps the first time in a while, and it's a little bit, like, shocking. You know what I'm saying? Where it, like, pierces. You're so used to always having noise, chaos, something in your ears, that all of a sudden when it shuts down, it's like, this is different. And so I didn't really know what to do with myself. I mean, there was no Timberwolves on the TV. There was no, I uh, left my Dan Brown book at home. I didn't have any babies on the couch. And so, to be honest with you, what I did was, I thought maybe this is a chance to connect with the real Matt and find myself for the first time. <laughs> so I opened up a journal. And I haven't journaled, you guys. I know I've talked in the past about the practice of journaling, but I talk a better game than I actually put to practice. And um, I started journaling, and I started thinking, like, what do you journal about? I think the last time we started with, like, dear journal, how are you? I'm fine. This is what I'm going through, that sort of thing. But it's been a little while, so I had a little dust on my journaling game, and I um, started looking up some writing prompts on my phone. And one of the things, the first thing it said was, like, write about the moment that you are in. So I thought about the moment that I personally am in, uh, wrote a little bit about that, wrote about the moment that we communally are in, wrote a little bit about that. And then one of the questions was, write about the moment that your city is in. So I started thinking about the election past week, and... As I was writing about the moment uh, that our city is in right now, it struck me, and I completely forgotten this, that two years ago, almost to this very date, uh, November 15th, 2015, is when Jamar Clark was shot and killed in North Minneapolis. That was two years ago. And I had recognized that in the midst of so much busy going go, on a personal level even, I had not stop to actually process and think about uh, all that transpired when Jamar Clark was killed and all that happened in the aftermath, what lingered after he was gone, the protest at 4th Precinct. And I spent some time yesterday afternoon writing about um, what it was like down there, seeing our city 
people of every color coming together in recognition of how far we have grown apart. And I remember that image of the beloved community. I remember it being a tense time, an angsty time, not being the most comfortable time. And then I started remembering that one night when um, the protesters started screaming because a group of white supremacists came down and they shot five people that were there. And I remember in the aftermath, the frenzy, the chaos of like, who was that? Why were they doing what they did? This was like before, you know, when racists, they wore masks. I know they don't do that anymore, but there was a time where they were embarrassed to be racist, and that was that time right there. We had no idea who these people were. So I'm writing about this, and I'm actually doing somewhat of a hard work of trying to discern what is it that I'm feeling and thinking and what's stirring in me. I remembered uh, something that I forgot about and I don't think I've told you guys about. So I was down there close to every day, as part of my conviction was that the church should be down there every day. And so I tried to spend a lot of time down there as a presence of peace, as somebody to pray with others. And after that shooting happened and the tensions only rose, uh, the tensions rose. And I remember waking up one morning to an email from somebody they said, hey, just a heads up, you need to know that there are some people in the midst of trying to figure out who did the shooting, who was a part of that group, there are some people who are convinced that it was you that had a gun in your hand. And not only did she tell me that, but she actually alluded to the fact that now, it wasn't just some people, it was Sean King who tweeted out a picture. Now, that's not a big deal, unless you understand that Sean King has 875,000 different Twitter followers. And they're all looking at that image going like, is that the image of the person who had a gun? That was a, a very angsty moment for me, as I'm sure you can imagine. I remember seeing that and not knowing what to do. I remember being frustrated and angry. And I'm going to be honest with you. Here's where my anger lied. And I'm not, I'm not justified. I'm not saying it's right. I'm going to tell you what it's true, though. I started thinking, like, of all the different white faces you should throw on there, I am a white face that should be celebrated, not a suspect. I am somebody who has come down into the midst of this thing. I'm trying to be your ally, your friend. I do the chants. I wear the shirts. What, what else could you, how could this possibly happen to me? That's literally where my head was. So in the midst of panic, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of the tension only rising around me and within me, I called my friend, our friend, Pastor D. McIntosh, and she was a saint and she tried to talk me down, de-escalate the tension that she obviously could sense within me. And she tried to explain how, you know, you need to understand that there are a lot of people down at the 4th Precinct right now who are very angry, very hurt, very scared, very stressed out. That's, that's part of what is happening right now. And I, I remember this. I don't know if Dee will remember this. But in the midst of my paranoia, in the midst of my anger, I said to Dee, um, I get it. I understand that people are angry. I understand that people are stressed out. I understand that people are scared. But how can you make somebody to be a suspect just because of the way that they look? And Dee didn't say anything, which said a lot. See, when I let that anger and the frustration of it all dissipate, and kind of level out. I had to listen to some internal things that were lingering in with me. And I realized in that space, as I was processing 
what it was like to think about what I just said to my friend Dee and the realities of she knows exactly what that's like. Um, I had realized that I had been spending so much of my energy trying to prove to everybody that I wasn't racist and so little of my energy trying to dismantle a system, a society that certainly is. I know what it's like to feel like you uh, are misunderstood, angry, hurt, sad, stressed out, feel like you've been read all the wrong way, and I know what it's like to hear something when you can listen beyond the hurt. I start this sermon with that story because while I was not here in this room last week, I know that when my friend Pastor Dee McIntosh came through, she said some things that left you in a certain way. That's not me guessing. That's not me wondering. I know it because some people have said that out loud to me. I mean, I've, I've heard that. That's why else do you think I ran away to Duluth this weekend? You all wouldn't leave me alone. I know that when Dee came through, in the aftermath, there were certain feelings of maybe hurt or helplessness or hopelessness, despair, frustration. I know that when Dee came through, there were people who wished that she did it. And hear me right now, I'm not trying to say that you have to feel a certain way about what went down last Sunday. I'm not saying you have to agree with everything that was said last Sunday. But what I think is very important is that when we actually move past or even move deeper into what really hurts, to ask yourself the question, now what do I hear? What's still standing when I let the questions linger a little bit longer? When D asked the question very pointedly, why would God use a predominantly white church to be a force for good in this city? What stirred up in you? How did you react? Was it defensiveness and dismissal? Was there substance in what she said? How are you holding all that you heard last weekend? How do you hold it whenever somebody brings in a narrative that doesn't look like the narrative that you hold of yourself? There's a text that, um, it's interesting, you guys. I don't think I've ever really said that God has put a text on my heart for this weekend. But I, I genuinely think after, on Sunday night, uh, I just started thinking about this text. I've never preached on this text, and there's reason why, and you're about to find out. It's an uncomfortable text. It's a little bit of a disturbing text, but I've had to sit with it all week because I do think that God has something he wants to say inside of it. And so if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be on the screen, so just follow along, and it starts like this. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, let me pause right there, actually. That is an interesting line right there. Then when the text says that Jesus withdrew, let's collectively ask why. Why is Jesus withdrawing right here? What is he trying to get away from? Now, because I know that you all are well biblically versed, and this is obvious, maybe I'm the only person who recognized this, but in the moment before this, Jesus has just had his heart completely crushed. His cousin, his best friend, his mentor, his pastor, really the only other person on the earth who understands a little bit of what it's like to be Jesus, he just was killed by Herod. The Baptist that we know as John, he is gone. He is no more. And so immediately afterwards, if you read the story and you see the humanity of Jesus, he's itching to get away. 
so much so that he hops on a boat by himself. He crosses the lake, and on the other side, in the moment that he actually thinks he has some space, he has his own Duluth, he gets a little peace and quiet, in the moment that he thinks he stumbles upon that, there are 5,000 people who stumble upon him. And to make matters only worse, Jesus arrives upon this crowd, and they're all there with an empty stomach. Jesus doesn't send him away. You know the story. He takes a fifth grader's lunch. He multiplies it somehow. And in the end, there are 5,000 people that showed up hungry, went away feeling full. And there's an interesting line that the text actually says about that. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Let me ask you a question. This is not rhetorical. I ask you if you have an answer, say it out loud. Why, why is 12 significant in this moment right here, in Jewish consciousness at this time? Why is the number 12 significant? Does anybody know? Completion. What else? Okay. Completion in tribes. Twelve represents the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve represents the twelve sons of Jacob. Twelve is the complete image of, of all the different identities inside of the land of Israel at this time. So Jesus has twelve leftover baskets filled with bread representing the twelve tribes. That's not all it represents. The 12 tribes of Israel was not just the total of Israel's uh, embodied identities. The 12 tribes of Israel was also the extent of Jesus' concern. He was here for Israel, for the Jewish people. There is a reason why it was 12 and not 13. 12 tribes, that is, he, he, that is what he is here for, that is who he is here for. The story goes on. He still is trying to find some R&R. He cannot actually find it. He gets so desperate, if you know the story, that he sends his disciples ahead in a boat, and he goes, what is the one place that people won't follow me? And he goes, well, I'll just take a walk out on the water in the middle of a storm, only to have Peter shout out, can I come too? Even there, he cannot find any peace and quiet, any alone time. He gets to the other side, and he arrives in this spot right here, Tyre and Sidon, and even there, somebody wants to have a word with him. The text tells us, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, because my daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. That is, um, well, picture this scene. This is a woman here whose daughter, her baby, is dying, is sick, is suffering. And the way that the Greek frames this language is it gives you the image that there is a woman who is physically chasing after Jesus and can't quite catch up to him, screaming at him begging for his help, begging for his attention. Now, we all know how this story is going to go because we know Jesus. He is open-minded. He is the all-compassionate shepherd. He's going to surely spin around and wrap this mother in his arms, but that's not what happens. The text says that Jesus did not answer a word. Why? Why doesn't Jesus flinch? Why doesn't he move? Why doesn't he say one word? And Matthew tells us why. He says that this isn't just a woman, this is a Canaanite woman. And that's significant because she wasn't a Canaanite woman. What we know at this time is that the Canaanites had long been gone. They were no longer a people in first century Israel. They weren't actually around at this point. The first gospel that's written is Mark, and Mark is the gospel that Matthew uses to write his own gospel. Mark says that this is not a Canaanite woman, this is a Syrophoenician woman. So why does Matthew go out of his way to say that this is a Canaanite woman? 
Matthew is writing to an audience that is predominantly Jewish, raised inside of the 12 tribes and the ideology that comes with it. And for that tribe, the word Canaanite is a pregnant and explosive word. That packs a punch. The Canaanites were the eternal, eternal enemies of God. They were the disgusted ones. They were the ones who were the most repulsive in all the stories of Israel. When they heard Canaanites, they all collectively cringed. The Canaanites were the detestable. It's all over the uh, Hebrew Bible in particular in the Old Testament where you see this most lifted up. But there's one text in particular that I want to draw your attention to because I think it really drives home the heart of the narrative that held them up together. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. This is what it reads about the Canaanites. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering into, possess, and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you real quickly. Don't talk to them. Don't look at them. Don't let your boys go to prom with their girls. Don't let your money go into their businesses' pockets. Stay away from those people. Destroy them totally. Canaanite lives in the Israel, in the Jewish consciousness of first century and earlier, Canaanite lives did not matter. So much so that actually in all of the Hebrew Bible, there's a term, an ethnic slur that is often slapped on them, and that term is dog. They are subhumans. They are creatures. They are street. They are nothing. They are dogs. They're subhuman. So, you know, we, we think about this moment of Jesus casting shade on this person, and we go, Jesus, is that really how you should be behaving? But to the Jewish person at this time, they heard this story, they'd say, what person? There is, there's Jesus. I don't see anybody else. There's a dog out there, which is an incredibly offensive and pregnant term. This woman is being ignored. She is being dismissed. Jesus is walking away from her. He wants nothing to do with her. And nevertheless, she persisted. She keeps coming after him. And what's interesting is even the disciples at this point can't understand why it is that Jesus is cold-shouldering and not just for, like full-out dismissing her. So the disciples say to Jesus, send her away. She keeps bugging us. She keeps crying after us. To which Jesus, who actually sees their personhood and deems them to be equals, turns to them. And he says to them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You got to read there that that girl, that girl and her girl, that girl and her problems back home, those are not my problems. I came for the 12. Remember the baskets? She's a part of the seven, the enemies. That's not really my, that's not my area of concern. My compassion, my concern goes this far, and then it stops. I came for the lost sheep of Israel and nobody else. Nevertheless, though, the woman persists. She came, and she knelt before him. 
demonstrably showing how desperate she is. And she yells, Lord, help me. And Jesus replies, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I have a Aussie professor at Fuller Seminary who once read this text and we explored the dynamics inside of it and he goes, isn't Jesus just a charmer? It's a difficult text. He calls her an ethnic slur. Of all the different ways that we have tried to theologically tap dance around this text, pretend like it does not exist, it happens all the same. It's in Matthew 15. He calls her an ethnic slur. There's one scholar, as I was studying this, who tried to um, make it prettier. And he goes, well, you need to understand that uh, he wasn't like calling her a dog. Like the term that was used is more like a pet dog, like a house dog. To which another scholar responded saying, so if you called a woman a dog, would it make any difference if you said you're a little dog? Would that make any difference whatsoever? What do you do with a text like this? How do you hold what you heard? Jesus is being faithful to his tradition. He's being faithful to his text. He's being faithful to what he grew up with. He's holding all that he heard, and it's a very problematic text, and it only gets more problematic when we remember what the sermon was that immediately preceded this moment here. Jesus grabs a pulpit in front of Pharisees, and he says, well, I have your attention. Let me tell you a couple of things. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's, that's what defiles them. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Jesus just said that, and then he, and then he said this. The heart, the word there in the Greek is cardia. When Jesus is talking about the heart, he is not talking about your physical heart. What he is talking about is the heart as the seat of your emotions, your passions, your worldview, the paradigm that you hold to see the world. What you speak out of comes from how you see all that is around you. It's a direct pipeline. So when you ask that question, how did Jesus see the world at this time? You see, one of the heresies that the Christian faith has often tried to dismantle, actually again and again and again, is this idea that Jesus was God who was wearing human skin as a costume. Like, I mean, he knew all, this was all just a test for this woman. He was, he was God just wearing human skin as a costume. But with Orthodox Christianity, what our faith actually espouses is that Jesus was fully God and that Jesus was fully human. And to be fully human at times may strike you as being too human. It might mean some things when we understand that to be fully human, as Luke tells us himself, is that Jesus grew up and had to learn some things. He had to encounter some things that stretched him a little bit. Now hear me, because I feel like we can collectively feel a cringe when we think about this right here, this idea of Jesus in this moment right here, issuing an ethnic slur, saying something that we've never really thought about Jesus. We don't have that in our promised Bible. It didn't make the cut. We can collectively cringe on something like this. But I want to show you why this text has spoken so loudly to me. Why if, you know, I didn't get why this was sitting on me Sunday night, but I understood yesterday morning because why I have a love-hate relationship with this text is that it tells me that 
if even the best of humanity, the Son of God Himself, is raised up with some prejudice planted in Him, how dare I think that I can escape that? It is idolatry and it is ignorance to think that we are free of prejudice inclinations. To think that uh, bias does not exist within us. Human objectivity doesn't exist. And this text reminds me that that is true. Because Jesus was a Jewish man. He grew up in a Jewish culture from Jewish parents. In a culture that said many different things. But one thing in particular was that Canaanite lights, they don't matter. Because they're not human, they're dogs. And while we might be offended in this moment here when he uses an ethnic slur, I understand it, I get that. But why weren't we offended when there were 12 baskets and not 13? Why weren't we offended that it was just for the scope of Israel at that point right there? See, one of the things that I've discerned in myself is that we tend to be offended about that which is striking, but not that which is subtle, the way the prejudice works in our lives, in our hearts, in our vision, how we speak, how we see, how we act, how we behave, how we hold, what we hear, and walk out, what we heard. I was in a workshop a few years ago where I recognized really how, um, how real that was, how I, didn't, I was not aware of the ways that my own racial prejudice in particular played into my life. And the question in the workshop, in a predominantly white uh, class was, what are the ways that race has played a role in your life? Has it had an effect on your life whatsoever? And, uh, well, the different people in the class, it kind of started with different stories one by one, and to a T, each of us who were white in that class said, well, I have, my brother is black, or I have a friend that is Hmong, or I have um, I try to serve a lot at the Native American communities, or um, there's a guy that's black on my fantasy football team. All these different experiences, and we kind of went one by one, we passed along these stories. Now, the trainer, the facilitator at the end, she goes, that's all great, and I'm going to name something. It's not to shame you whatsoever, but I do want us to be collectively aware of what just happened. It's important that we identify these things when they happen. Each of you shared a story about a cross-racial experience to define how it is that race has impacted your life. You know that, right? So when you say that that is how race has impacted your life, what you simultaneously are saying is that race has no impact on your life unless a person of color is in the same room as you. She goes, might I suggest to you what a more accurate and honest answer would look like? If I were to ask you that question, here's what you should have said. The forces of race have played a role in my life before I was born. When my mother carried me in her womb, the nutrition that she received, the environmental safety that she had, the transportation that she had. When we got to the hospital, the way that she was treated, the way that the doctors cared for her, the language that was used, the psychological abuse and whatnot, and what she dodged and ducked. Who owned the hospital that I was born in? The care that I received when I was coming out? And who were the people that were taking out the garbage when we were leaving? Who were the people that were cleaning up the room when we left? I had no idea that race had played that 
We heard these message through the eyes that we were born with, that was planted within us, and what would it be look, to look at what's planted within us through the eyes of thee? See, I, seem, I personally would say that this is the next stage of the church when it comes to evangelization. It's not going about and trying to fix everybody, but it might be going out and saying, what do you see? What's, what's actually within us? Because when Dee asked certain questions last week, yeah, it, it definitely left me going like, really? Frustrated. You don't think a predominantly white church could be a force for good, especially in the pursuit of racial justice. But then by Thursday, I was going, what reason would she have to think that? Like, historically, where has the white church been some force for good? To hold that expectation doesn't really seem fair nor honest. And there's been this slow churning in me where I'm trying to get to where Jesus got to, where I'm able to let the woman, the person, the voice, the conflicting and confronting narrative be something that doesn't make me angry, but be something that sets me free. And you want to know how it sets Jesus free in this text? This is the beautiful thing right here. He gets called out, confronted. He has his conflicting narratives collide. But then he stumbles into the next scene, and there is immediately after, there's another crowd that comes his way. Woman's no longer there, but 4,000 people are hungry. And the same line says after that, after he feeds them, they all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Last time, it was 12 baskets for the 12 tribes of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, it talked about seven nations that needed to be destroyed, Canaanites included. But in this next moment, it's not 12 baskets, it's seven baskets. Jesus recognizes himself I'm here to feed everybody. And he shifts not only his personal understanding, but his communal understanding from one of genocide to one of generosity. That's the power of when we run into a conflicting or confronting narrative that makes you actually think some things that might hurt to hold inside of us. But man, that's a good news story on the other side. When I think about us as a community, where we're going from here, I want us to be the kind of community that can take hard conversations, that can hear heavy and hard things that might not feel good, and not reactively try to dismiss it and make the uncomfortable things go away. How do we hold it in the midst of the hurt so that we can actually hear it for all that it is? Let me pray. Jesus, you are good. You are God. Lord, what I love about you is that you leave us a path not just to live like you live, but to learn how you learned. God, to step into the fullness of our story in the same way that you did, God. God, you are good. And um, I'm grateful. In Christ's name, we all say together, amen. This is often the, my favorite part of the night when we come together to take communion. Because it's this chance we have to, um, much more than just process a message, but look inside ourselves and acknowledge assumptions and presumptions and 
racism and things inside of us. We can bring those things up here where we can meet Jesus and we can be set free because this is the place and the space where all are welcome and we are welcome wherever we are at. And that's what I love about this community is we are aspiring to honesty and truth. We are acknowledging that we've been invited on this mission alongside God and that um, we don't know what we're doing. We maybe don't even know ourselves all that well. But here's the beauty, God does. And we can know each other and do it together and keep stepping forward into the hard conversations and the hard looks at ourselves. We can do it hand in hand with the one who came and ministered and loved and invites us into all of that. That's the hope. The night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples, 12 of them. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into it and he said, this is the new covenant. My blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So that's what we get to do when we come together on Sunday nights. We take the bread and we dip it into the cup. And we remember Jesus and his love for us and the love and kindness and justice that he calls us to. So during the music, we invite you up. There'll be people in the front with gluten-free elements and people here on the sides as well. And together stand and we will pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.